0: Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.
1: us to see the other and to welcome them with open arms amen you may be seated during the season of epiphany the church asks in the light of christ revealed to us but if we pay attention then contrary to our expectations we find the light of god shining out today from the marginal as God listens attentively to the voices of Christ from the wilderness. God is revealed to the oppressed in ways the powerful do not know, so that our salvation is wrapped up in listening to their voices. This year, we're returning to our sermon series, Voices from the Wilderness. This series situates us as attentive listeners to theological voices that cry from the margins of our society. In past years, we've heard the witness of black theology, feminist theology, and Latin American liberation theology. And we've also heard from eco-theology, indigenous theology, and womanist theology. A few weeks ago, we listened to the voice of Lutheranista theology, which gives expression to the voice of Latinas in this country and their experience of God. Now, one thing I've been really aware of in preparing this sermon series is that while we've listened to a diverse range of voices, they've all come from the Western Hemisphere. And in particular, one thing I've been mindful of, especially over the last few years, is the the omission of voices from Asia. And so this year, I am glad to turn our voices to theologies that come from Asia. From Korea this week, we'll listen to the voice of Min theology, the exploited who see the suffering servant among them. And in a few weeks from India, we'll listen to Dalit Theology, the untouchables who belong at table with the the King of God. As we listen to Minjung Theology, we ask, whose story is being told in the Christian tradition? At Pearl, we talk about sacred story as one of our core rhythms. We express a sacred story, we share at a common table so that we will be animated by divine love. But whose story are we telling? Now, on the one hand, that might seem like a silly question, like one of those questions you get asked in Sunday school, and the, the answer is always Jesus. <laughs> uh, you know, right? We're telling Jesus' story, right? That's the sacred story. Well, from in theology, we'll see. The answer is deeper and richer. Yes, the sacred story is about Jesus. It's because Jesus chooses to make our story his story. So, minjung theology developed in Korea. It was first articulated in the 1970s to speak to the experience of suffering and oppression that were being experienced by the common people. It was first expressed by theologians like Nam Dong Su and Byung Mung Han. And it's continued to develop through to the current day. But it has its roots in the historical experience of the common people of the Korean peninsula from long before the partition into North and South Korea. Andrew Kim of Korea University in Seoul writes, historically, Koreans' collective memory of continual foreign invasions and occupations, and particularly the atrocities committed by the Japanese during the Japanese colonial rule of 1910 to 45, have instilled a strong sense of suffering in the minds of Koreans. More importantly, the rise of Minjung theology is owed to the suffering of the masses during the country's industrialization, industrialization drive from the early 60s. During this period of rapid industrialization, Korean workers were subjected to artificially low wages and long hours of work uh, to make the industry in South Korea attractive to Western investors. Uh, many laborers would work upwards of 70 hours a week under poor working conditions. And any attempt to fight against this exploitation was met with harsh punishment up to and including imprisonment. From the 60s through to the 80s, Minjung theology continued to develop as South Korea experienced a series of authoritarian regimes. And Minjung theology aimed to help Christianity speak to and support those who were suffering exploitation. And today, as South Korea increasingly experiences a polarity between extreme wealth and poverty, uh, it continues to side with the marginalized. The term Minjung, uh, explains theologian Cyrus Moon, refers to those who are oppressed politically, exploited economically, alienated socially, and kept uneducated in cultural and intellectual matters. Or, in the brief definition of Nam Dong Soon, the group that is ruled by others is the Minjō. The group that is ruled by others is the Minjō. So why are the Minjō the focus of this theology? Because their long experience of suffering has led to the development of what is called Han. Han is a term often translated as sadness, sorrow, resentment, or bitterness, or grief, or regret. Because of the many occupations, authoritarian regimes, wars, and economic exploitation the Minjung have a history of oppression, sadness, and frustration, which has given rise to this mindset called Han, which is pent-up resentment and despair about the unfairness of life. But this despair itself can also be expressed as a cry, a voice from the wilderness. And here Minjung theologians point out the Exodus, when God hears the cry of people rising up to him to release them from exploitation and suffering. From the perspective of Minjung theology, the crucial issue that needs to be addressed is not sin. This is really interesting, because here in the West, sin is the whole problem, right? But under Minjung theology, Han is the issue which must be addressed. Uh, until now, Christian theology has been preoccupied with the problem of sin, right? It's not However, the task of Minjung theology is to resolve the Han of the people. Because that's more meaningful than being forgiven for committing sins. Mm -hmm. Not sin, but bitterness of soul Mm -hmm. and oppression is the great concern Mm -hmm. that Jesus came to address. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the most revolutionary ideas I think venture theology brings is its answer to the question, whose story is being told in the Christian tradition? Earlier, I noted that we generally assume that the primary story is Jesus' story. However, for Minjung theology, the main story the Christian tradition is helping us explore is the story of the Minjung, And it's in telling and developing their story that we will find the story of God. But the story Christianity tells is of how the people became crushed by Han, by despair, and how God is working to return them to agency, to having hope in the world. Kim Yong-bak explains, power is the antagonist in this story while the people are the subjects the Minjung themselves are the protagonists and so the story of the Minjung entails a historical understanding which regards them as subjects not objects of their own story and destiny now that point is really important they are subjects not objects in the experience of the Minjung in how history is normally articulated the Minjung are the ruled. Remember that definition. Whoever is being ruled, those are the Minjung. Which means that normally they are cast as the acted upon. Right? They're the recipients of rule. They experience suffering that is caused by colonialism, by empire. They undergo exploitation of unjust market practices. They suffer deprivation. So they are always being acted upon. as so their sense of themselves is full of despair and helplessness for a time. And then, into that experience, wander Christian missionaries saying, God has acted on you in Jesus, and all you have to do is believe it. Well, here again is a story where the minjung are just the passive recipients of the action of a ruler. If the sense of the people is that they are always the acted upon, that they have no agency, then a theology that tells them God has acted on their behalf doesn't actually help them. It doesn't dissipate the harm. They still remain essentially helpless and without agency in their own lives. Their stories are not their own. Instead, Minjung theology sees Jesus as the suffering servant who chooses to take on the story of the Minjung as his own and so dignifies their lives and their responsibility of action. Now this theme of the suffering servant is really interesting. We read this story from Isaiah this morning, uh, this this text of the suffering servant, which Christians tend to read as referring to Jesus. But originally this text from Isaiah was about Israel. Israel was the servant of God's ways in the world. And then Jesus chooses specifically to take on the story of Israel and to make it his own. In the Gospel of Matthew particularly, we see this being illustrated We see Jesus enacting the whole story of Israel in his life. He goes down to Egypt, and then he returns to the land. He passes through water like the Red Sea, but in baptism. He wanders in the desert for 40 days. And then he goes up on a mountain where he gives a new teaching as if a new Moses, a new law of love the flourishing and growth of his ministry up to the point where he's being proclaimed with palm branches like he is the new King David entering Jerusalem and then he's crushed under the wheel of empire just as Israel was. He reenacts the entire story of Israel as his own story. Now here's the point that men theology wants us to see. When Jesus takes that story of Israel on himself, the divine is saying to the oppressed, I'm going to make your story, my story. And I think that's worth sitting with. The divine says to the oppressed, I'm going to make your story, my story. Rather than, hey, you leave your story, come join my story. Rather than humanity leaving behind our story and becoming part of God's story, God chooses to live out our story so that when we tell our story, we are telling God's story. For Minjun theology, in choosing to become one of the Minjun, Jesus makes the experience and story of the Minjun sacred. And Sue Kim writes, Jesus' decision to go to Galilee after the, the arrest of John the Baptist indicates that he entered the situation of the Minjung as one of them. Galilee was the land of the oppressed, the alienated, and exploited Minjung." Before the Minjung, his proclamation of the imminence of the kingdom of God was a message of hope. Instead of being be acted upon, the Minjung become with Jesus dignified actors in God's story. Their action, their choices, their desires matter enough that God would share them. This is very different than being told you are forgiven. Into Han, a state of helplessness, wherever the exploited are. They are dignified, as God says, I will live your story. Your story will be my story. Now, this is really beautiful. But also, if we're not careful, this can take us to really terrible places. Follow me here. One of the pervasive problems in religion is that as soon as you get a group of people and you tell them God is on your side, God's story is your story, well, then eventually the other shoe is going to drop. Okay, so if God's on our side, then God's not on their side. If God's in our story, God's not in their story. And so we end up with tribalism. God's story is our story. We are the chosen. So we get motivated, we get dignified, and we take power. And what happens when the exploited have the opportunity to exercise power? Well, we see an example of this again in the story of Israel. So the people are emerging from the wilderness, right? They've been in Exodus. They've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, and they're about to enter into the land. They're right on the brink, and and Moses stops them, and he gives a sermon, a really long sermon, way longer than any sermon I would ever give. He just talks and talks, but it's the book of Deuteronomy, and it's this sermon that's essentially exhorting the people never to forget where they came from, never to forget that they were once oppressed. And exhorting them never to become oppressors. In this sermon, we find a passage where these rules are laid down for the eventual time the community will grow and need a king. Well, we've done this before, Pearl, but it's worth repeating. It's worth repeating this text. Also, it's funny. So, Moses says to this king, He must not acquire many horses for himself or return the people to Egypt in order to require more horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you must never return that way again, and you must not acquire many wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away, or silver and gold, he must not acquire a great quantity before himself. So in short, the king of Israel is not to become another pharaoh. You're not just to become another empire, because you know what it's like to be under the heel of empire. But generations later, when kingship finally does come on the scene for Israel, we read of Solomon, son of David. This is him in 1 Kings. Solomon gathered together chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he stand, stationed at the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. Okay, so that's not good. You're not supposed to have horses. But at, at least the horses are not from Egypt. Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Q. And the king's traders received them from Q at a price. Oh, okay. Well, at least he doesn't have a lot of wives. King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh. Among his wives were 700 princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. Yikes. Well, at least there's no gold. The weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold besides what came from traders and the business merchants. Okay, you get the point here. Within one generation of kingship, the the writers are telling us, Israel has forgotten what it's like to be the suffering ones. And immediately, Israel just becomes another empire. They have their own slaves, and they are exercising their own oppression. Now, this is where we find something very radical about Minjung theology, and it's this. The term Minjung is not attached to any specific group of people permanently, it's not an ethnic term. It's not a socioeconomic term. It just points at whoever at this moment is being ruled. Whoever at this moment is being exploited. Uh, Kim Yong Bok explains Minjung is a dynamic and changing concept. Woman belongs to Minjung when she's politically dominated by man. An ethnic group is a Minjung group when it's politically dominated by another group. A race is Minjung when it is dominated by another ruling race. When intellectuals are suppressed by the military power elite, they belong to the minjung. So, if today's minjung liberate themselves, they say, okay, God's story is our story, God is on our side, and they eventually take power over others, well then according to theory, theory, theology, they are no longer the minjung. The label just slides to whoever is now exploited, and now their story is the story that God is entering. God is taking on as his own. So this not only prevents one group from claiming that they are God's chosen and so justified in becoming an empire, it also continually pushes us to ask today, who is Minjung and how is God joining their story? Because of the dynamic nature of Minjung, Minjung theology suggests a very different way of thinking about the task of theology. If we want to tell our sacred story, according to men theology, we have to do so in a way that honors the way of Jesus. That is, we have to see that God doesn't ask us to leave our story and become passive recipients. Rather, God chooses to make our story God's story. God shows in Jesus that our lived experience really matters, that it's sacred. That our concerns, and our fears, and our hopes, and our creativity are beautiful enough for God to share them. And the work of Christianity today is seeing what exploitation, what suffering, and what harm is bringing about Han in the world. What causes the men Jung to experience Han and with Jesus to enter their experience and to make their story our story? And it is here that we're doing the work of listening to God's sacred story. So, for us at Pearl Church today, I think min theology raises several good questions for us to ponder. And I, I want to close with just some questions. These are things we have closed. Again, the, the nature of this dynamic theology, this dynamic label, means that we can't just once and for all answer these questions. They're questions we sit with. And we engage over and over. Questions like this. One. What changes if the core issue in the world isn't sin or law-breaking, but rather harm The despair and the helplessness that are experienced by the exploited and marginalized. How does that change our understanding of the gospel? Good news. What harm is being experienced in the world today, and how can it be dissipated and resolved? Two, as we seek to promote equity in our community, how would we approach that work differently if our goal was not to just be the saviors or help other people, but to help those who are exploited and oppressed become dignified actors in their own stories, rather than just recipients of help? How can the helpless be made to experience themselves as sacred and engaged actors in their own stories, to help them shift from being objects in a story the powerful to protagonists in their own story? Third. How do we relate to a god who says your story will be my story to a god whose way is to step right into our experience of suffering and loss and despair and to share it with us to show us that our stories whatever they are are dignified what would it mean for us to sit and meditate on god saying your story will be my story and finally What does it mean for us that God is always entering the story of whoever is exploited? That this is a dynamic and movable label, something that always has to be discerned again for today. Who today in our world is being exploited? And how is God entering their experience and sharing their story? And with that, are we at risk of moving from being the oppressed to becoming oppressors? And how do we stay open? To listen and find whoever is Minjun. I think these are good questions for us to ponder and to sit with. And they're, to me, some of the gifts of Minjun theology to us. Will you pray with me? God of the other, help us to see the other wherever they are. And to join their story just as you are joining their story.